Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Here on HI 101 with Phil Downey. Yo. And we're going to be talking about uh, the first stage this week. And I'm really excited to do this one mainly because it's a really good example of how sometimes very like petty and small things like, say, greed and revenge and and very human emotions like that uh, can have a really big impact on very large events in history. So... Um, that's something I really want to keep in mind as we go through all of this, because we're going to see a lot of opportunities where um, groups who on paper probably should have been working together and should have been very happy to ally with one another are going to fall into kind of petty uh, infighting, squabbling uh, that's going to make things a lot more difficult for them. And uh, I, I think it's a really great example of how um, you really can't expect history to act in a logical or uh, rational uh, way. Sometimes people are just people and they act like people. So um, let's get right into it. So I mainly want to focus on Doriath, but we, we really can't talk about it without talking about some uh, things that happened a lot or, or uh, uh, quite a bit before um, the main chunk of our story. Um, specifically, uh, we need to talk about Fanor. Uh, Fanor was a craftsman. Uh, he was a, a member of the Noldor. Uh, he was actually a son of the, uh, the king, Finway. And he was considered uh, the greatest craftsman in the world at the time. And we're talking far enough back that the world is still lit by the light of two holy trees in the continent of, uh, of uh, Valinor. And everything's going pretty well. Things are fairly peaceful. It's an era where... Um, this level of peace has really allowed uh, craftsmanship and art to flourish, kind of Renaissance style, you know, yeah. that sort of excess of materials, excess of resources, excess of uh, wealth and um, uh, lack of political upheaval can kind of lead to this uh, golden age of, of uh, art and craftsmanship. Fanor worked on tons of things. It's, we, we don't have time for all of them, but like the main thing we want to talk about here are three jewels that he created known as the Silmarils. And those uh, three jewels were um, supposedly, I mean, no one's seen them, they're all gone, but uh, supposedly so unique and so uh, uh, incredible that they could never be replicated. And uh, he claimed that what he had done is, is uh, captured the light of the two trees into these three jewels. One, one of them was the, the light of the golden tree, one was the silver tree, and the third was uh, the mingling of the two lights. That's the the sort of the the um 
thought process behind it. Was there any sort of conflict toward or about someone doing something like that at the time? Like, is this, oh no, not at all. Uh, in this fact, kosher? he was celebrated for it. It was considered a, a great achievement. Very cool. Things like this never really last, though. Yeah, of course. And uh, things kind of come crashing around everyone's ears when uh, one, one of the Valar, uh, known as Melkor, um, he had been playing like he uh, had made right towards all the other Valar. Um, early in his uh, time in in uh, in the world, uh, he, had, he had basically tried to subjugate all of Arda and, uh, <laughs> you know, oops, <laughs> as oops. you do sometimes. And and uh, he had been in jail for three ages and he claimed to have seen the error of his ways, but was secretly biding his time looking for revenge. Uh, he found that revenge in destroying the two trees. He brought the giant spider Ungoliant uh, into Valinor, uh, had her poison both of the trees and uh, then fled. Rude. Mm-hmm. A, they were beyond the skill of the Valar to heal. And... They were also beyond the, Val- uh, the skill of the Valar to recreate. However, they realized that the Silmarils contained the light of these two trees. Ah. And they went to Feanor and said, hey, we need to destroy these three jewels to save the, the two holy trees. And Feanor said no. Uh-oh. He basically said, it will kill me to do that. And, and I don't think he was being hyperbolic. He had put some of his own essence into creating these jewels. I mean... This is yeah, a, this it's not is a, a non-ordinary feat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but beyond that, I mean, he was also a very proud person. Yeah. Um, he didn't want to see his greatest work uh, destroyed. And I think because of the defensiveness that comes up out of this, he, he really blamed the rest of the Valar for what Melkor had done in a way, basically saying, well, if you hadn't imprisoned him, he wouldn't have retaliated in this way and we wouldn't be in this situation. Now, that's a little bit of a naive way of looking at things. Well, I mean, he's hurting. I I, I don't want to forgive his, his uh, (laughs) characterization of the situation. Right. But it is, um, yeah, you can understand where he's coming from. Well, and I mean, I I wouldn't be at all surprised if he was somewhat um, influenced by uh, Melkor at this point in time. Um, so he said, no, he said, absolutely not. That can never happen. And then to add, you know, hurt on top of hurt, he found out that his father, Finway had been killed by Melkor as he fled Valinor. Mm. Finway had been holding the Silmarils at the time. Oh, good. Melkor had stolen them. So it became a moot point, but Fanor swore revenge against Melkor, who he renamed, uh, Morgoth at this point, the dark one. And uh, basically said, I'm going back to Arda. Whoever wants to come with me can come with me. We are going to defeat Morgoth and we are going to get those back. And by the way, none but myself or my family are allowed to hold the Silmarils. And they swore an oath of vengeance on basically anyone other than themselves who might hold those jewels. Neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things like that always go really well. Yeah, I'm sure that's going to... Look, you always get issues when you have some sort of treaty mm-hmm. and the, you know, you have the, the very letter of the, of the law versus uh, the spirit of it. Yeah. Like there's just no way that this is going to work out well. No. I mean, he's explicitly swearing to kill anyone who has them. <laughs> That's not a good deal. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I mean, the idea of, of taking on a Valar with a fairly small number of, of Noldor is, is pretty, 
insane, I guess, would be a, a reasonable characterization. That is not the, that, again, that's our first like very uh, irrational act that's happening here. Yeah. He's not going to be able to do this on his own. The very first, like the, the ramifications of this oath um, manifest themselves basically right away in that the Valar tell him, no, you can't leave Valinor. Like this is, don't, don't do this. And in order to get back to Arda, uh, which involves sailing across a fairly substantial sea, he went down to uh, the harbors where um, there was another group known as the Teleri, uh, who were uh, incredible uh, shipbuilders. They loved the sea. And he demanded that they give him ships to cross. And they said, no, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. Like, maybe you should just stay here. He slaughtered them for their ships. Oh, geez. This is the first uh, uh, documented case of elves killing other elves. Um, yeah, it doesn't take long for the <laughs> poison fruits of these to show themselves. Uh, how about that renaissance, eh? That was a good time. Sure was. They get back to Arda. They set siege to Morgoth's fortress known as Ang- Ag- Angband, sorry. And uh, they actually managed to keep him contained for some time, but... Very, very early on in the fighting, uh, Fanor himself was killed by Morgoth personally, and his seven sons swore to uphold his oath to continue pursuing the Silmarils at all costs, all of this. So now that we have the oath of Fanor out of the way, because that's really what we wanted to understand before we get going here, I want to turn our attention back to uh, Doriath. Um, Doriath is a Sindar kingdom in the middle of Beleriand, and Beleriand is kind of the region of, of Arda that we're talking about in this, uh, in this topic. The kingdom was founded, supposedly, um, before uh, the sun and moon were in the sky, is, the, is the kind of the story behind it. Um, the sun and moon were set there by uh, the Valar, after the poisoning of the trees, the trees each gave one last fruit, the golden one, the sun, and the silver one, the moon, that were set in the sky to basically limit Morgoth as much as possible because the light uh, uh, injured him. Mm. Um, but we kind of skipped a portion earlier about the uh, the elves getting to Valinor. I mean, they were born in Arda, and the Valinor went and basically, sorry, the Valar went to invite them to Valinor for this golden age. Hey guys, come party with us. Yeah. This place sucks. Morgoth's been here. Um, <laughs> but not all of them ended up going. Some of them just straight up didn't answer the call, but others, um, specifically the Teleri, were split along the journey. One of their kings, uh, Elway, while they were traveling, met a Maiar uh, in, the, in the forest uh, named Melian and was absolutely transfixed by her, like literally transfixed. He okay. stood there for uh supposedly a century um it's a long time it's transfixed by her beauty and and she fell in love with him as well and they ended up not making it to valinor he decided to stay there with her and some of the teleri ended up staying with him and uh this split led to the ones who stayed uh being known as the sindar and elway became their king founded this uh, this kingdom of of doriath and when the Noldor got back to Arda chasing Morgoth, they found that it wasn't really as empty as they were really expecting. There is this giant kingdom in the middle of it. Right. And so while they start building their fortresses and whatnot to take on Morgoth, they realize like, hey, we're not the only ones here. And here's the thing. 
Elway, who by this time is is actually going by the name Thingle. Uh, it's a whole uh, language thing. Let's not get into that. Elway Thingle comes from Elway. Anyway, sure. whatever. Sure. Language uh, evolves over time. Sure does. Um, he finds out about the kinslaying at the harbor. And mm. those are literally the kin of his brother who did get to Valinor. And he uh, swore that no Noldor would be allowed within uh, the confines of Doriath. Whoops. Mm-hmm. What's more, uh, Doriath was really well protected. Melion had uh, enough foresight to realize that the peace that lasted under, um, you know, th- those ages where where Melkor had been, you know, chained up in Valinor was not going to last. And so uh, she um, counseled Thingol to start working with dwarves in the nearby region um, to. Uh, arm and train uh, soldiers for the borders. And so when the Noldor got there, uh, the Sindar were actually really well armed and armored and held their borders. What's more, supposedly, she had put a spell on the borders to keep uh, any enemies out. Okay, so I have questions. Yes, absolutely. Uh, You mentioned this person who Elway at the time Mm -hmm. saw yep, and just was enamored by them. Mm-hmm. What was that character's name? Melian. Sorry, what was that person's name? Mm-hmm. Melian. Okay, Melian. And you described her as a Maiar? Yes, that's right. Where do they come from? Also from uh, Valinor. Okay. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a lower order than the, the Valar. Okay, she's just hanging out there, though? Yeah, I mean, the... the when... In the time when the elves were invited to Valinor, there was a lot more... Um, freedom for the Valar and Maiar to move uh, to Arda as well as Valinor. Okay. Um, this uh, flight of the Noldor to Arda is really where you get a hard division between um, Maiar and Valar staying in Valinor and leaving Arda to its own devices because it's concurrent with uh, Morgoth establishing his power in the north of Beleriand. Mm. Um, and there's a bit of a sense there that number one, there's a an established population within Balerion that yes, the Valar could maybe roll Morgoth, but probably at the expense of all of those lives. Yeah. Number two, the Noldor have made their bed. Maybe we let them lie in it. Number three, we have to protect the people who are actually under our dominion right now. That's and fair. so the uh, the Noldor are not allowed to come back to Valinor after the kinslaying at the uh, at the harbors obviously and all of this kind of goes hand in hand to create a world where the the Valar and Maiar appearing in uh, in Arda is, is is quite rare but not not unheard of um, however Melion's been there since before this uh, uh, commandment was in place and so uh, to, to stay there is not forbidden or anything like that she's free to do as she wills Okay, and uh, how long have the elves been in the V place, which I've already forgotten how to pronounce? Valinor? Yes. A few thousand years. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, a while. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's usually listed as three ages. So, gotcha. You know, nice, so vague. That, that was about, about the same amount of time that Morgoth mm-hmm. was imprisoned. Correct. Okay, gotcha. Yep. No, so you're, they you're, got that locked away and said, "Hey, elves, we got him. We got him taken care of. Come party." Yeah, you're 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 more or less on track here. Okay. Yeah, got it. 
gotta keep that mental model up to date yeah oh no i i get it it's a complicated story and we're working from a low number of sources it's happening so long ago that a lot of this stuff is muddled or yeah of even mythologized it gets you know I, I get it it gets a little hairy yeah in general after the noldor return Doriath actually remains fairly neutral in most conflicts that are happening in Beleriand. Morgoth's forces very rarely actually come as far south as uh, as Doriath, and when they do, they can't get through the borders that are so well defended. Um, besides which, Thingol doesn't actually have the same vendetta towards Morgoth. It's not as though they're uh, allies in any sense, but he's not actively attacking them at the moment. Right. Um, so Morgoth has more of a fight on his hands with the Noldor. That's where he's going to focus the majority of his forces. And the Noldor are blinded by this oath that they've taken. Um, although not all of them, to be fair. Yeah, I was going to ask, when the Noldor pieced out, uh, did they, did any of them stay or did the entire, like, did they just... Exit on mass, right? No, de- definitely some stayed in Valinor. So yeah. uh, for the rest of the ser- uh, for the, for the rest of the um, topic here, any Noldor we're talking about are only the ones that actually uh, left Valinor. And even then, not all of them participated in the kinslaying. Um, some of them actually uh, uh, traveled north far enough that they could cross the sea on uh, on ice. They traveled far enough north that it was frozen. Okay. Um, and those ones actually were uh, allowed um, to enter Doriath because uh, uh, Thingol didn't necessarily have a problem with Noldor. He had an issue with uh, the Kinslayers in particular because remember, he was also Teleri. Yeah. So these are very specifically like his brother's people that were killed. Yeah. Um, It's very personal for him. Gotcha. Um, So in a lot of ways, as I said, he's not an ally of Morgoth, but he has no greater love for the Noldor, specifically the Kinslayers, uh, than than he does really for for Morgoth in a lot of ways. Makes Uh, sense. Yeah. Realistically, and this is what I was talking about when we started, if you take a step back and you look at the two groups of people, um, there's absolutely no reason that the Noldor shouldn't be working with the Sindar against Morgoth. They are sort of on paper natural allies. Yeah. Um, and the threat that Morgoth poses to Beleriand should be plenty to unite them in this cause. Besides with besides which, the Noldor should be looking at the Sindar going, wow, you guys are well armed. You're really well prepared for all of this. Maybe we need to work together, put some differences aside. They make absolutely no uh, uh, effort on this front to try and win the Sindar over. Just completely unapologetic in their crusade, basically. I think crusade is a really good word for it. Actually, it's very, uh, it, it's very. Ze- uh, uh, that's not the word I was looking for at all. Uh, zealous. That's what it was. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's very zealous. It's very uh, uh, kind of blind. Um, uh, very angry and 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 very focused on one thing to the point of being kind of blinkered um mm. uh they they don't really look at the long game here they are focused on keeping troops at the doors of Angband. now there are as i mentioned other noldor that have founded other kingdoms that don't necessarily agree with the oath of feanor um they see it as reckless they see it as dangerous um some of them kind of followed uh, uh the rest of the noldor as i said northwards without necessarily they oppose Morgoth, but they aren't necessarily willing to do the same things that the Sons of Feanor uh, are willing to do. They're not willing to kill Kin. And, 
you do get a variety of Noldor, and, and you get a couple of kingdoms that are founded by these people, um, Gondolin, for example, or or Nargothrond. And these people will... Like, it really complicates the uh, dynamic within uh, Beleriand at this point in terms of who's uh, who's willing to ally with whom, who's, who's willing to uh, give aid to whom, uh, who's even uh, uh, willing to tolerate the others to be around. And in the midst of all this, there's finally, after a, a fairly long time, a, a substantial battle uh, at Angband uh, known as Dagar Bragaloch, which is a battle in which Morgoth, who you know has kind of been just barely holding back the siege for an incredibly long time, that entire time has been working on new weapons, new uh, you know training new troops. Uh, coming up with uh, 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 new tactics, things like that. And he decides that the Noldor haven't really gotten stronger. They've just been doing the same thing because they've been getting the same result the entire time. And he pours forth all these new forces, including uh, Balrogs, including uh, stronger uh, types of, of orcs, including trolls, and, and completely steamrolls these people. And for a while there, it looks like he might actually end up being quite successful in all of this. He's also got uh, quite a number of men on his side at this point, uh, known as the Easterlings. Yeah, I was just going to ask what uh, what our peeps have been up to. A lot of uh, a lot of them were swayed to Morgoth fairly early on in their existence. Uh, as best as we can tell, men came into existence around the same time as the sun and moon were set in the sky. And so we're really only talking about a couple of hundred years right now. Okay. Um, he, he meaning Morgoth, managed to find uh, uh, men sooner than the elves did and managed to teach them a lot of things. And in doing so, managed to sway a lot of them to his side. Not that's all of them. Hard when that's all you know. Yeah. To think otherwise. Oh, certainly. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, there, there are men fighting on Morgoth's side here. Um, but not all of them. And uh, one of the main... Uh, uh, one of the main kingdoms uh, opposing Morgoth, still known as Dorthonian, uh, stood at the the Battle of Dagar Bragaloch. Bragaloch. That's a hard one to say, man. Man, I've been <laughs> I've been doing some rough pronunciation episodes lately. China's been rough. This, you know, whatever. Um, the kingdom of Dorthonian stands uh, with Nargothrond at this battle, um, and. Bear here, the, the king of Dorthonian, manages to uh, rescue uh, Finrod, the, the king of Nargothrond, uh, during this battle and, and saves his life. It would have been a certain thing that he'd been killed. And Finrod actually gives him this, uh, this ring uh, as, uh, uh, as a symbol of gratitude and also as a uh, sort of a if you ever need a favor kind of thing. So we're talking about uh, a human mm -hmm. saving an elf. Yep. Is this one of their first encounters? I mean, they were very familiar with each other. They had been fighting together in this uh, in this campaign for some time. Okay. So it's not as though it was the first time he'd ever seen him or anything like that. Yeah. But the number of... In general, the default uh, uh, perception of humans by elves at this point in time would be probably allied with Morgoth. Okay. And so for a human to do something like this uh, was exceptional. Uh, it's not as though Finrod didn't 
already uh, uh, recognize him as as being an exceptional person. Mm. Um, but uh, you know, sort of in the wider context, this he, is going a step beyond. Yeah, yeah, the level of gratitude there is is, is uh, significant. Um, besides which, you know, the, the the stakes for death, as we know, are, are quite different for elves and humans i mean if you're an elf and you get killed in battle like whatever you just go to the halls of mandos wait a couple of uh, uh millennia and you'll probably be reincarnated unless you did something really dumb humans psh, no one knows out into the void beyond the the heavens so uh you know um the that that's that's not something that uh that bear here needed to do yeah yeah the risk to his own his own safety was very high yeah. compared to that of the person he rescued. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, the the kingdom of Dorthonian is, is destroyed uh, during this campaign, even though uh, Morgoth ultimately ends up being contained. Um, and uh, Berahir and his family end up going basically into exile. They're, they're wandering around and... Uh, uh, at some point shortly thereafter, uh, Morgoth sends his uh, lieutenant, uh, Sauron, to hunt down the remainder of the kingdom of Dorthonian. Hey, I've heard of that guy. Yeah, you sure have. Well, he's <laughs> uh, he's not so much in this story, really. He's just kind of a... He, he's an errand boy a little bit. He's around. Yeah, he sure is. He's taken a lot of orders. <laughs> um, he ends up finding Barahir and, uh, and killing him and uh, the rest of his people. But Barahir's son, Baron, happens to be away... Uh, when all this happens uh, and survives. And so while there's been a sort of a thought of potentially uh, refounding Dorthonian and starting over at some point, uh, that's pretty much out the window at this point. There's no one really left to start over. Uh, Baron's wandering on his own or with a small band of other men, uh, kind of, you know, fighting Morgoth's forces where he can, but he's just one guy. He's not really making any substantial impact. Here's where we kind of start bringing the story back down to a more human level again. The Noldor haven't really made any major strides in their attempts to get the Silmarils back. Morgoth, meanwhile, has had them set into his Iron Crown and basically spends all of his time on a throne in Angband, uh, you know, bathed in the light of these Silmarils. That's uh, causing him agony. Like, he can't even touch them without, like, massive pain. But he also can't stand to be out of the sight of them. Hmm. And the Noldor can't do anything about it. They can barely hold back the forces of Angband, let alone make any inroads. Well, Baron happens to manage to wander into Doriath, which he technically shouldn't have been able to do. Uh, the border patrols were supposed to have stopped him. The uh, sort of ephemeral idea of this girdle of Melion should have stopped him somehow. But there's always been this prophecy on the books and I mean, prophecy is a funny thing. It tends to fulfill itself as often as anything else. That yeah. eventually somebody with a with a doom greater than uh, Melion's power will be able to break her seal and, and enter Doriath, which sounds like a really convenient excuse to me, honestly, uh, for maybe somebody else slip through at some point. Yeah. But here we are. Well, he's in Doriath, and he happens to see a Sindar named uh, Luthien. And Luthien happens to be the daughter of Thingol and Melian. Mm. And she has a legendary, supposedly, uh, singing voice. Mm. Um, and he falls in love at first sight. It's very, like, Arthurian, yeah. right? Uh, he calls her Tenuviel, which means uh, uh, nightingale. Just long black hair. Yeah, usual stuff. Um, and uh, he, he kind of 
follows around watching for a while, which is really creepy, but she eventually catches him and doesn't really stop him at all and turns into this like flirty thing that happens for a few months and they end up falling for each other. Sure. Humans and elves don't fall for each other. That's not a thing that happens. But these two did. Um, now there's this uh, there's this uh, uh, minstrel in Thingol's court that happens to notice them one night being together, and he knows that Thingol is going to be mad because not only is Thingol not happy to have other uh, elves into his kingdom, he won't even take uh, humans on as servants. Mm. Um, he is heaped out by the fact that most of them work <laughs> for. Uh, uh, Morgoth, you he know, just has a bad feeling about them. It's a little racist, a little bit. But, you know, but like you know, they are sort of trying to, you know, uh, do the thing. You know, <laughs> I, I, I get it. I guess. I mean, you'd think based on Baron's pedigree that maybe there would be some opportunity for wiggle room here, but not so much. In yeah. fact, when he's informed, oh, so of he this, he knows of this person, uh, Baron's. Like history? He knows a bear here. Oh, okay. Oh, yes. All right. I thought he just saw a human and was like, ah. Well, I mean, that, that is the reaction here. Okay. <laughs> that is the that is the initial visceral reaction to all of this. Yes. But no, he knows who bear here is. And um, when this when this other guy rats them out, which <laughs> is definitely the way to get the girl, by the way. Yeah, of course. Uh-huh. That'll work. Totally going to be the effective tech, or, uh, tactic here. <laughs> it's the weirdest negging I've ever heard. Um Baron is brought before uh, Thingol and he basically goes, what do you want? Like, what are you doing here? I should kill you on the spot. And Baron goes, I want to marry your daughter. That's what I want. That's the only thing I want. And Thingol is planning on killing him on the spot um, until Melion basically tells him, like, you can't, you can't do that. That's, yeah. There's, there's some bad juju going on here. <laughs> this is not. Yeah. No, don't, don't maybe, do that. Maybe don't just murder people for being in love with someone else basically she tells him that if he tries to kill uh baron that it will be his own doom yeah well that sort of goes against the uh elven religion right you mentioned that as long as you don't do anything stupid yeah well a couple i mean millennia later you'll just be reincarnated so yeah but i mean it's not I, yeah killing one person isn't going to be enough to not get reincarnated okay no so there has to be like a a a cosmic judgment against uh, the deeds that you've done um th- so yeah things like for example the kinslaying would be the sort of thing that would keep you from getting reincarnated or sure um there are uh you know there's some pretty serious um cultural taboos against things like um I don't know, i'm trying to think of other examples of people who weren't inca- oh uh um uh, like incest, mm. um, there's a there's a, a famous case of an elf that uh, is is not going to be reincarnated because he uh, has a has a child with his uh, cousin, cousin or sister. I can't remember at the moment. I apologize. Um, but things like that are pretty pretty serious. So, um, but but yeah, killing one person. I mean, this is a this is a the the idea that any killing whatsoever would prevent that in. Uh, Balerian in the first age is just completely impractical. That's just not how that works. Okay. So what's like, is there a record of why she intercedes here then? Um, bad feelings. I mean, mm. there's a lot of talk about Melion getting, um, uh, something, uh, something along the lines of, of prophetic visions Okay. and, and things like that. Now, again, maybe this is a prophecy. Maybe she was trying to keep her husband from doing something 
dumb and rash and angry. I, I, who knows? But um, Fingal decides that he's going to be a smartass about it and goes, okay, fine. I won't kill you. Tell you what, I'll even let you marry my daughter. All you need to do for me is pay me a bride price. And uh, the price for my daughter's hand. Yawn. <laughs> I know you have to grade history on a curve, but. The price for my daughter's hand uh, is uh, one Silmaril. Oh, good. One Silmaril, please. <laughs> Not even all three, just one. Just one of them. That should be easy enough, right? And Fingal is thinking to himself, I just managed to kill him without even needing to do yeah, it myself. I didn't do it. Someone else is going to do it for me. And Melion says to him, um, hey, remember the oath of Fanor? You are now involved in that. That oath destroys everything it touches. Yeah. You should not have done this. This is, this is folly. Like you, it, she, she tells him basically that was, that was clever. Um, not clever enough. Yeah. So Baron, I mean, he's expecting Baron to basically go away here. Yeah. Baron decides he's going to try for it. Because sure. that's the kind of guy the parent is. Yeah, I mean, you're in love. What, what else are you going to do? Also, one of the most powerful men in the world at that point in time. Sure. Not not only in, in terms of political power, but also in terms of like physical strength, combat, uh, uh, acumen, things like that. Yeah. Um, and so he rides out. He's going to go get himself a Silmaril. Um, remember that favor that uh, Finrod owed his father? Vaguely. For saving his life at the battle. Yes. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> Baron still has that ring. And so he goes to Finrod and he says, hey, I need, I need help. Just just a small favor, please. Yeah, I just need a Silmaril. Just an Silmaril. And Finrod, and Finrod is so moved both by what uh, uh, Barra here had done for him and by Baron's story uh, that he decides like, yeah, all right, let's do it. Okay, so... Who owes Baron the, Finrod, the favor? Finrod? Finrod owes Barahir a favor. Barahir is dead, but his yeah. son Baron is asking for the favor, okay. so he's fulfilling it. So we've got Finrod mm -hmm. and Thingol? Thingol, yeah. What's their relation? I've forgotten. Not great. Okay. Uh, Finrod is Noldor. Okay. That being said, he does not agree with uh, the oath of Fanor. He sees okay. it as a, a destructive thing. Was no, he's created... he involved with the kinslaying. No, he actually went north. Okay. Um, now that being said, there are uh, uh, kinslayers among his subjects. Okay. Um, his his kingdom uh, of Nargothrond is, uh, I mean, I'm calling it a kingdom. It's a it's more like a, a city. Um, it's tucked into the mountains. It's uh, an old dwarvish uh, uh, mine that's been repurposed as a city. Um, other than Doriath, very few cities are actually like openly existing in this world. Most of them are fortified. They're hidden. Um, even within uh, Doriath, uh, the actual city in which uh, Thingol lives is similarly a, a mountain that's been carved out. He actually hired dwarves to build him a, a mountain uh, stronghold within the city because Melion, again, another prophecy, probably just being prudent, uh, stated that at some point uh, the uh, her borders will be pierced by uh, enemy forces, that he needs to be prepared. Um, so Finrod and Thingol know each other. They are on relatively friendly terms uh, for Thingol, which is, uh, you know, 
they know each other and don't hate each other. Right. But I don't think Fingal would necessarily have been terribly happy about him helping with this feat. Yes. Uh, had he known what was going on. So fin- uh, Finrod and uh, Baron set out along with uh, 10 other men to go and, uh, well, get a Silmaril from Morgoth. Wait, so like literally it's the 12 of them? Yep. No great armies or anything? Here's the thing. We've been trying great armies against uh, Angband for a really long time. Okay. They go out and they find a band of orcs. Uh-huh. They kill those orcs. Yeah. They steal their uh, armor and then they disguise themselves, their faces, to look like orcs. Shock trooper style. Yep. And it works pretty well. They actually get very far behind enemy lines. Nice. Uh, until they approach... <laughs> Until they approach the fortress of Sauron. Okay. And uh, Sauron manages to see through the uh, the disguise, I suppose, and um, uh, captures them. Okay. But he can't tell who they are. He just knows that they're elves and a man, but he doesn't actually realize that this is Baron and Finrod. If he had, he probably would have... Well, I mean, taking him straight to Morgoth, uh, yeah. who, who knows what he would have done with them. But he could tell that Finrod was powerful. Yeah. So he started killing elves one by one and telling the rest of them, I'll let you go if you tell me who you are. And they wouldn't. And then he would kill another one and so on and so on until it was only Baron and Finrod left. Meanwhile, Luthien, who had basically been confined to her quarters after this whole thing went down, um, got tired of waiting is this the nightingale? Yes. Okay. And she slipped out past her guards and uh, went looking for help and recruited Juan, the hound. So he was a giant magical dog. Okay. Mm-hmm. The thing is, everyone's treating Luthien like a, you know, delicate little flower. Yeah. She is also an incredibly powerful elf. She mm. has uh, uh, that, that singing that she's well known for. Magical. Of course. Obviously. Yeah. Uh, she's going to go find out what's happened to the rest of them. It's been a little too long. She doesn't like that she hasn't gotten any news back. She's aware of the plan with Finrod um, and hasn't gotten any word from uh, Narthrond and wants to know what's going on. Sauron, meanwhile, has decided to kill Baron, and Finrod ends up putting his body in between uh Sauron's forces and Baron saving his life at about the same time Juan and uh uh Luthien get there and bust into his fortress now there is a prophecy about Juan as well which is that he's going to be killed by a wolf by a great wolf and Sauron knows this one of his powers is shape-shifting so he turns himself into a giant wolf and starts attacking Juan Mm. Juan's no joke he ends up defeating Sauron in one-on-one combat. Nice. Uh, Sauron realizes that he's leaving, and he turns himself into a snake, and then a, uh, his own normal form, and then a, a, a vampire. And basically, Luthien speaks to him and says that um, they're not going to let him go uh, unless he abandons his physical form and his dominion over this place. And he ends up basically having to crawl back to Morgoth as a ghost. He has to slip his... Uh, physical shell uh, to get away from Juan, who will not uh, allow him to leave. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, no big deal. Just defeat Sauron a little bit <laughs> and rescue Baron from the from the depths of this chamber. Um, then the three of them, Juan, Luthien, and Baron, continue north to uh, to Angband. 
Morgoth now knows that they're coming because mm-hmm. um, Sauron ratted. And he takes a wolf and he starts changing it and growing oh. it. Oh, good. And cursing it and turns it into this massive beast known as Karkaroth that sits in front of the gates of Angband waiting for Juan. When they get there, Luthien sings them to sleep and they just <laughs> walk right through. And she prevents, presents herself to Morgoth in his throne room and asks if he can sing to her. And Morgoth is weirdly enamored by her and says yes, which is his big mistake here because he sings, uh, she sings all of them to sleep. Right. His head tips forward and the iron crown falls off. Baron manages to cut a Silmaril from the crown and grabs it in his hand. Um, which one did he get? It's not said. Uh, it's it. the I believe it's the mix of the two. That's the one I would have gone for. Yeah. Um, I don't think he really had time, but he did get a little bit greedy. And here again, this is the, that bit of greed that goes in. He starts picking at another one, and his knife breaks as he's trying to uh, pry it out. He just about had it. And a piece of the knife strikes Morgoth in the face, and he starts to wake up. Yep. So the two of them run for it. Juan is... Uh, uh, stood guard outside, by the way. And they get to the gates, but Karkroth is awoken. Baron holds forward the Silmaril, which, by the way, isn't hurting him at all. It's accepted him as uh, a worthy holder. He holds forth the Silmaril and basically tries to banish Karkroth with the, the light of the Silmaril. Karkroth bites off his hand holding the Silmaril. No good. Uh Baron is horribly wounded by this. Uh, uh, Luthien barely manages to get him out of there uh, alive, but this Silmaril is now burning a hole in Karkaroth's stomach. Uh, it basically drives him insane with pain, and he runs off marauding through all of Beleriand at this point, basically. Yeah. Luthien manages to heal Baron, and they get him back uh, to Doriath, get him in front of Thingol, and he says, and Thingol says, well, have you, have you brought me what I asked for? And Baron says, yes, even right now, the, the Silmaril is in my hand and shows him both <laughs> hands. And Thingol realizes like what this guy has actually gone through and survived. Yeah. And they explain the rest of the story to him. And he actually really softens after this. It's a, it's a, it's a really interesting um, change in his demeanor towards anyone that's not Sindar. Yeah. And he decides to allow uh, uh, Baron to marry Luthien. And if that's where we were going to stop our story, it would be kind of nice. But that's <laughs> of course not where we're going to stop our story. However, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep on going with um, kind of Thingol's arc. So if you want the happy ending, stop listening yeah, now. Yeah, stop right here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Back on HI101 here with Phil Downey. Hello again. And we've been talking about uh, mainly the kingdom of Doriath. And we're going, going to branch out a little bit, but it's it's really what I was hoping to focus on today. Um, and when we ended off, Baron had nearly managed to recover a Silmaril from the crown of Morgoth with, uh, with Luthien's help. Um, actually, Luthien did most of the work if we're going to be realistic about it here. Um, Magical elf lady. Mm-hmm. It's amazing what you can get done. Yeah. Um, but we kind of have a, uh, uh, 
loose thread kind of hanging at the end of that story, which is a a massive wolf marauding through the countryside uh, with a Silmaril burning a hole in its in its stomach. Yeah, like how long is that going to take before it just falls out? It doesn't. It he, he's he's marauding around for years. And uh, finally, they realize that Karkaroth is getting close to the borders of Doriath. And while they're fairly confident that the Girdle, girdle of Melion will hold, uh, not confident enough to just let it be. Um, Baron and Thingol decide to go out hunting together, along with Juan, uh, to see if they can actually bring down Karkaroth once and for all, uh, bring some peace to the land. It's It's quite reasonable to call Karkaroth a bigger threat at this point to Balerion than anything else coming out of Angband. Just because, um, like, he's being driven crazy from the pain? Uh, yes. Uh, he's also incredibly powerful. I mean, he could hold his own with uh, some of the worst uh, shock troops that Morgoth has to bring to bear. I mean, a, Karkaroth could potentially give a, a Balrog a, a run for its money. Mm. And it's also, despite the fact that it's uh, that, that Karkaroth is kind of rejecting the power of of the Silmaril, or rather, the Silmaril is rejecting Karkaroth, it's still feeding off of that power. Mm-hmm. Um, twisted as that is, and kind of uh, sullied as that is, um, it, it, it's making him quite powerful. So they go out to hunt, and remember that prophecy that Juan was going to be killed by a wolf at some point, right? Yeah. Uh, during the hunt, uh, Baron pulls out a, a spear as Karkaroth is charging straight at him and uh, manages to uh, wound him slightly, but uh, is knocked to the ground. And Thingol, instead of continuing to go after Karkaroth, actually stops and um, turns to tend to Baron. Meanwhile, uh, Juan just barely manages to uh, uh, tear out Karkaroth's throat. Uh, but is himself killed in the process. Mm. And so it seems that Baron's wounds are are close enough to uh, fatal that he's likely going to die. So the other members of the hunting party, you know, their they're retinue or whatever you want to call it, sure. managed to um, uh, cut the belly from, uh, uh, or cut the Silmaril from the belly of Karkaroth. And when they first cut it open, uh, uh, the stories at least say that uh, Baron's hand was still clutching it, although as soon as they pulled it out, the hand disappeared and they were left with only a Silmaril. I think it's mostly poetic, but hey, here we are. Um, <laughs> they bring this, the, the Silmaril to Baron and they put it in his hand. And supposedly the last thing he does before uh, before he dies is uh, hand the Silmaril to uh, Thingol and say, now the quest is achieved and my doom full rot. Basically saying, okay, well, I've I've done what I said I would do here. I've actually done it this time. You know, there's no outstanding debts to be paid. Uh, I've completed what I set out to do. And Thingol was devastated at all of this. Obviously, he'd grown to really love Baron. Um, but this other kind of change in his demeanor comes over him, in that he becomes very enraptured with the Silmaril. He loves it a little bit too much. Mm. Um, he Sounds became familiar. very proud of it, but also very paranoid. And I don't think for no reason at all. I mean, the uh, Sons of Fanor were not interested in taking on Doriath directly. They are aware of the protections that are in place there. 
but also he knows the oath is there. He knows it exists. He knows mm-hmm. that people want to take this from him. And this really shifts the dynamic of Beleriand in this era in that Morgoth isn't the only enemy of the Noldor anymore. Right. Yeah. Sworn enemies now. In having taken this Silmaril, yes, he has this thing of power, but also he's just made himself another enemy of um, at least the Kinslayers. Yeah. And this is the point in the war where you start seeing everything really fall apart for the enemies of Morgoth. Lufian, by the way, uh, uh, dies as well um, from, from grief, basically, at having lost Baron. They did have a son, though, Dior. And and he's made uh, heir to Thingol's uh, uh, throne. A half half elf. Yeah, he is a half elf. He's also Thingol's only grandson. Wow. Still, mm-hmm. I mean, I get that he came around on Baron, but well, here's the thing: he's not. That's a pretty big precedent. He, he's he's uh, half human, uh, quarter elf, quarter uh, Maiar. Yeah. He's he's got some pedigree. That's true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It is a change in, in, in attitude for him. And in this era, I mean, he's even taken in, uh, humans under his protection, uh, in, in certain very specific cases. Um, it's, it's, it's a very, it, it, it's strange because he's made very strong, positive changes to his attitude, but he's also made some major negative changes in terms of his, uh, his, uh, relationship with the Silmaril. The, the thing is, I, I mean, I'm I'm speculating here. This is my own opinion, but I don't think he ever really set out to actually possess a Silmaril. Yeah, it was more of a a way of getting Baron dead, mm-hmm. or, or to go away, and he yeah. didn't really care which at that point in time. Um, but to actually have it now is a very different thing. Yeah, and yeah, it it also sets up a really interesting um, dynamic for those sons of Fanor in that, well, who do you attack now? the Sindar or Morgoth. Um, on one hand, they've been trying to attack Morgoth for a very long time and failing, so maybe Doriath is a, a, an easier target. On the other hand, Doriath is protected by a Maiar, and one single human and one elf just proved that Morgoth was not unassailable. He's looking very weak right now. Mm-hmm. He just had a, a, a silver plucked from his, his grasp, seemingly fairly easily is this a porcanolos dose situation um not just yet (laughs) but i mean it does make things a lot more complicated for them right sure meanwhile we do have a dead king to deal with and finrod the death of finrod made his nephew king uh an oldor named oradreth and oradreth has seen the same dynamic that we were just talking about play out and he's starting to look at morgoth as somewhat more manageable than they have previously see nargothron traditionally had attacked uh the forces of of uh angband using uh guerrilla warfare tactics a lot of uh you know striking from from ambush a lot of you know poison weapons a lot of traps a lot of you know things like that trying to uh, avoid direct battle as much as possible because the last couple of battles had gone so poorly for the noldor but between Morgoth's recent defeat and um, uh, Ordrath had actually taken on a uh, human uh, commander, uh, a man named Turin, who persuaded Ordrath that no, I, I think actually 
pitched battle is the way to go here. He's clearly shown that he's weak. Let's try this. What you need to know about uh, Nargothrond is, um, remember I mentioned that it was a, a, it used to be Dwarven Halls, right? The way in or out of Nargothrond was through a really treacherous, fairly narrow uh, path that leads up beside a river. And you can't really move forces in and out through that path very easily, which is both a positive thing and a negative, right? It's It provides defense. It provides uh, um, uh, camouflage. Morgoth wasn't actually entirely sure exactly where Nargothrond was mm-hmm. up until this point, but it also prevents you from reasonably pitching like full battle if you can't actually march an army out uh unless it's over a course of like a week or two one at a time that's absolute garbage so turin persuades oradreth to build a bridge across the the river so that they could basically march right out the front door and onto the onto the fields which sounds like a great idea except you basically just put up a giant neon sign with arrows pointing attack here (laughs) yeah nargothrond here come get so it really shouldn't come as any surprise that before Nargothrond is entirely ready, uh, Morgoth uh, sends out massive armies. There's a brief pitched battle with what Nargothrond could scrape together on short notice, but they get rolled and uh, Morgoth's army marches in and sacks the city. It's absolutely destroyed. And this is another point where we get like very like personal and like a lot of emotions come into the story in, a, in kind of a weird way. Um, Turin's son happened to be away when all of this was happening. Um, he was out on patrol, and uh, it, it took a long time. There's a lot of sons being away in this uh, section of history. There's a lot of sons that weren't. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. No, I mean, he was a full-grown man. He was out on on patrol, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, you're, you're right, though. It, it is. It does feel a little bit convenient at times. It takes him a long time before before he's able to actually get back into Nargothrond. Um, it's it's uh, occupied by Morgoth's forces for some time. But when he does finally get in, he manages to uh, uh, find in the throne room, uh, hidden, a piece of jewelry that had been given to Finrod by uh, the dwarves as, a, as sort of a token of friendship. And this necklace is, is uh, uh, known as the Noglamir. And it's this fabled like piece of dwarven craftsmanship it's it's uh you know this massive gold chain that feels as light as though it's made of straw yeah all the usual stuff Mm -hmm. it's apparently beautiful it's considered the greatest thing that the dwarves have ever made uh by the dwarves and uh giving it to uh finrod was uh, a a really meaningful gesture well he picks up this uh this necklace and takes it with him and Turin's family, after the sack, was supposed to have been uh, protected by uh, Thingol. They they went to Doriath for protection. And Thingol had done his best, but um, when they were outside of Doriath, they had been killed by Morgoth's forces. This is uh, uh, Hurin's, um, uh, uh, sorry, Turin's son's uh, family, uh, Turin's son being Hurin. Um, Hurin goes to uh, Thingol and sarcastically not knowing what he has mind you sarcastically presents this necklace to thingle and says in payment for taking care of my family Mm. like a basically a good job like they're all dead good work here you go i guess and thingle goes like okay and sends him off but he realizes what he's just been given and he decides 
and this is that sort of greedy part of him that I've been kind of alluding to. He decides that it's going to be a good idea that since he has one of the most precious treasures of the dwarves and one of the most precious treasures of the elves to set the Silmaril in to the Nargothrond or sorry, into the, the Noglamir and create this like one amazing necklace with this huge gem and all of this. Right. And so he sends for craftsmen from, um, uh, Nogrod, which is the, the nearest uh, uh, city of the dwarves. And these are the dwarves that have been friends with Finrod for uh, for centuries. These are the dwarves that uh, helped create uh, Fingal's uh, uh, mountain halls. Um, they're, they're good friends up until this point in time. He asks a number of craftsmen to basically set this jewel into this necklace. And they know what they have, but they agree to do it. Except that once it's finished... Uh, they decide that they don't really want to part with it back to Thingol. <laughs> they argue to him that the Noglamir was presented to Finrod, not to Thingol, so that he couldn't have come by it honestly, mm. that he should return it to the dwarves and that they'd be happy to do so for him. And Thingol went, no, I'll pay you to do the work that I told you to do, but like, we're not getting, like, you guys are trying to pull one on me here. Yeah. And a scuffle breaks out. And when it ends, a bunch of dwarves are dead. So is Thingol. Oh, geez. Yeah, they kill him over this necklace. Mm. A couple of the dwarves manage to escape. They get back to uh, uh, Nagrod and basically lie about what happened and get the entire city whipped up into a frenzy against uh, Doriath. They basically said they were betrayed, they were killed by Thingol, Thingol wasn't willing to pay them, Thingol has the Noglamir and is unwilling to return it to, you know, the, usual, the usual stuff, and, and it gets the, the leadership really riled. Melian, in her grief at the death of her husband, decides to leave. Yeah, I was just going to say, bounce. <laughs> yep, she decides to go back to Valinor. Doriath is left to Dior, and... Just as he's made king, a massive army of dwarves with no more magical protection, either psychological or actual, yeah. um, arrive on their doorstep and basically sack uh, the entire country. It is a brutal and vicious battle. Yikes. They take the Noglamir in the process. Um, Which did have the Silmaril set into it? Sure did. Okay. So there's an oath that happened a while back. Yeah. About whoever holds the the Silmarils. And now some dwarves have it. Yeah, they don't have it long. Uh Dior uh but manages they have it. <laughs> Dior manages to raise uh, a, an army, uh gather some allies. Oh, he survived? Yeah, he did survive all of this. And uh Nagrod is uh invaded, uh significantly sacked there's there's massive damage to Nogron to the point that it's going to be abandoned shortly thereafter okay um and they managed to uh retrieve the uh the Silmaril but there's massive losses on both sides and the whole thing is over a piece of jewelry and it's it's this weird back and forth over like I understand it's a symbol and I understand that it's unique and all of that but like oof, we've got a Morgoth to deal with here like yeah. you know what I mean this is this is some rough stuff. Y'all are fighting over a bit of shine while Morgoth is, oh, I don't know, threatening your very existence. Dior now has the Silmaril again, but here's the thing. Now everybody knows that Melion is gone. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows that Dior has the Silmaril. 
and her sons of Fanor. Yep. Uh, this is known as the second kin slaying. Oh, good. Basically, they sent Dior a couple of messages demanding the Silmaril. He just straight up didn't reply to them. Like, I'm not going to waste my time on this. Um, and so they didn't really ask again. They just showed up with armies. And Doriath was already in rough shape after the war with the dwarves. Yeah. But this destroyed the kingdom. There is really no Doriath after all of this. And the great irony of it is that although Dior is killed and this massive massacre is perpetuated by the sons of Feanor, they don't get the Silmaril. Because no. when they're on their way, Dior sends off his daughter, Elwing, uh, along with some guards uh, to the safety of some kinsmen on the coast. And Elwing is carrying the Silmaril with her. They don't get it. It's not just kicking the problem down for other generations. Right. And that's the thing about this oath, right? Like it, it's never, it's never really resolved or not, not never, but I mean, these things aren't resolving it. The way that Feanor's sons are going about resolving it are not productive. They're not helpful. Um, they're not getting them what they want. And in reality, we've gone beyond a sort of, classic good and evil style conflict here where we're opposing the dark lord on moral grounds or anything like that this is pure greed at this point yeah it's it's so senseless it's senseless it's it's a little bit um it's a little bit strange in that way uh, especially when they not that getting it would have made it any better but not getting it makes it kind of worse if that makes sense yeah this basically leaves one kingdom that Morgoth actually worries about left in existence. Yeah. Nargothrond is gone. Doriath is gone. Even Noldor, which like, he didn't really worry about that much. Or Sorry, Nagrod. Even Nagrod, which he didn't really worry about that much, has been significantly weakened. Um, there's a kingdom known as Gondolin that's that's hidden in the in the uh in the mountains. And it's it's been there for uh for centuries uh under uh King Turgon. Morgoth kind of turns his will on figuring out how to uh, defeat Gondolin before Gondolin becomes a problem for him. And basically he found a single elf named Maglin, who was uh, the nephew of, of uh, uh, the king of Gondolin, uh, who was willing to uh, rat out this centuries-long secret of where exactly Gondolin was uh, in exchange for a promise of lordship over Gondolin. Hmm. which obviously it's it, obviously Morgoth is not going to keep that promise. Nope. He rolls every single soldier he has into Gondolin and destroys it. And this is the point in the story where it's kind of like, you guys had so much strength behind you. If you had just forgotten about these stupid jewels. Yeah. This wouldn't have been an issue. Baron going in there and actually managing to take it sets off this weird chain of events that, has absolutely nothing to do with Morgoth's strength at all. It's all about infighting on the part of the the men and the elves. They done f***ed up, son. Yeah, you could say that. Um, the city was completely destroyed in the surprise attack. You know, obviously there's survivors and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, one of the survivors named Arandil, 
uh, managed to move to the coast and where he ended up meeting Elwing, the daughter of Dior, and uh, married her. Now, Arendil was supposedly the greatest sailor that had ever lived. And there's kind of two versions of the end of this story. One is that in desperation, Gilgalad, who was a, a king of the Noldor and kind of the new high king after the defeat of Gondolin, he was a kinsman of, of, of Turgon, uh, managed to rally. Who's Turgon? Turgon was the king of Gondolin before it was sacked. Got it. I know. It's a lot of names. I apologize. There's so many. Um, Gilgalad managed to raise an army. And it was basically everybody left who opposed Morgoth. Mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, all of the uh, elves uh, in uh, Beleriand. It was all of the dwarves. It was some of the men, not all of them. Yeah. And they realized in a last-ditch effort that this was their chance to defeat Morgoth and went to war. The other version of this story is that Arendil was given the Silmaril by his wife Elwing, and he attached it to the prow of his ship and managed to sail it across the sea to Valinor, where the Silmaril allowed him to sort of pierce the fog and the network of islands and, and, and sharp rocks that had been set up to cut off Valinor from the rest of the world to actually land on the shores of Valinor and beg for help from the Valar. Basically say, this is the moment we need it. Mm -hmm. And in this version of the story, they take Arendil's ship and set it in the sky as a, a, a beacon for the rest of the world. And then they agree. They, they go to they go to Beleriand, they join uh, Gilgalad's forces, and uh, they cast uh, uh, Morgoth down. Either way, Morgoth is defeated here. And supposedly the two remaining Silmaril are seized by the two remaining sons of uh, Fanor. They've been killed in various conflicts throughout this oath. I mean, three of them were killed by Dior during the sack of Doriath, for goodness sake. The two remaining sons each grab the two remaining Silmarils, and their hands, like Morgoths, are burned by unworthiness. And one uh, falls into a chasm in the earth and is swallowed up, and the other, I mean both the sun and the Silmaril, uh, and the other uh, casts himself into the ocean um, so that the three Silmarils end up in the, uh, in the earth and the sea and the sky. But either way, the defeat of Morgoth uh, leads to the end of the First Age. Um, it's a very clear break, um, as well as uh, the destruction of Beleriand. Complete and utter destruction. It is basically sinks into the sea. Uh, there is nothing even remotely resembling Beleriand left. So that's the end of our story. So the destruction of Beleriand, is that just... It's a consequence of the War of Wrath, which yeah. is the, the, the name of that final uh, conflict between Morgoth and, and possibly all of the Valar. Yeah. Uh, who are brought to cast him down. And Morgoth himself is a Valar? Yep. The the I assume probably the most powerful of all of them. Uh, since he on his own seems to be able to handle a lot. I mean that's that's a you're you're getting into a very metaphysical question <laughs> there. Um I think a lot of people would say yes. I think a lot of other people would say uh, yes, except for uh, Manway, mm. um, who is sort of the uh, leader of the Valar um, in Valinor. But 
uh, yeah, either way, it's it's reasonable to peg him as an extremely uh, strong Valar. Wow. Yeah. And as sort of, you know, operatic as the scale of this whole story uh, gets, you know, the beginnings and the ends, it's, it's, it's weird. The thing that interests me the most is those little moments in time where things turn on a, a person's, uh, you know, flash of emotion over something, yeah. uh, you know, envy and greed and, and anger and, and how much of an effect that has on the overall scale of the story. Not to mention that, like, the quote-unquote happy ending we got in the middle yeah, also turned on someone's positive emotion yeah. just coming out of nowhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like there's, there's a good uh, balance of the two there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, and I think it has a lot to say about how these things often go, because I think in... I, I think when we're talking about history there's there is this uh sort of tendency to toward a uh, tendency towards looking for um reason and sense uh mm. behind decisions and behind uh uh events and and behind uh people's motivations and yeah. i think it's a I, I think it's something that's important to remind ourselves once in a while that hey people are impulsive yeah as much as we're talking about the elves here it's a very human yeah of course it's a very human thing mm-hmm. uh to just to have the course of history hinge on an emotion mm-hmm. there's there's not much more human than that yeah exactly so uh that's the first stage was there any other questions any other feedback from you what did you think uh it's interesting to hear all this mm-hmm. um i'm curious like are are the silmarils ever recovered or no they they're lost to time mm-hmm. wow yeah all right. Yeah. That's well, a good ending. Thanks for coming on with me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. We'll have to have you back soon. Yeah, for sure. All right. It's Adam and Phil back. We just wanted to do a quick coda before we went. Yep. Um, I know this is a little bit different than some of the other uh, April Fool's ones we've done in that... Surprise, that's not uh, real history. Gotcha. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. You know what? You say that. There were there were some people that got got by the uh, King Arthur one last year. Yeah, I can of, imagine. They were kind of mad at me about it. Yeah. Uh, which I enjoyed immensely. That's um, the whole goal. Oh. But I mean, th- I, I think that was the first one was actually like... Plaza. Like I, yeah. I, I worked that one hard, man. Um, this one, I, I looked at doing it that way, and there's no realistic way of making this story. You've got to talk. You got to. You have to say the word elf so you understand, mm-hmm. like which ones are elves and which ones are not elves, because well, that's important to the story. Yeah, and then getting the whole, you know, world analog gods involved and things yeah. like that. Like um, the, the Valar are gods, angels. Or Valar, gods? Valar would be like gods, and the Maiar would be like angels. Okay. I suppose would be the closest analog um you know it's it's rough at best but that's tolkien for you yeah um yeah no i i as much as this one didn't necessarily fit the same format as i managed to do like even for something like star wars you could sort of Mm -hmm. ish make it sound like an actual thing ish i like i'm not gonna lie i'm sitting here the whole time like very carefully choosing how to react and yeah trying to reflect on the star wars episode which was my favorite of your April oh, fools ones. paul crushed it on that one he did such a good job and i'm just trying to remember like how how paul reacted and like trying to emulate that but right. like 
I had to just do it my own way. <laughs> That's the only way you can do the show. Um, but no, I, I, I really, really, really wanted to do this one. And I think this is for, for two reasons. Number one, when Miller first pitched me the idea of doing these April Fool's episodes, um, well, within my first year, because I've, I've done them every April, I've done this show. Yeah. Um, this was one of the first things that got pitched mm-hmm. was doing Tolkien. And one of the first things I shot down is like, oh, no, there's no way I'm doing this. It's- I even remember when you told me you were doing one of these, I said, oh, are you going to do Lord of the Rings? And yeah. you were like, no, yeah, <laughs> there's no way. Pretty much. <laughs> the Internet will eat me alive. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm scared of the Tolkien nerds. That's absolutely true. We love you, Tolkien nerds, but you are a frightening bunch. Uh, yeah. Uh Quick sidebar, if I like pronounce something wrong, I don't care. Please don't tell me. <laughs> I, I guarantee I did. Did you I, did you notice me struggling to even try? I'm like the M1, yeah, the no, R1. Like, oh, these names are so like yeah. they just if you called them Mark and Robert, it might have been a little <laughs> easier, but like it's a brand new name. How am I supposed to remember that? So I've I've always been scared oh. of doing that one because it's it's tough and people care a lot about it and people know a lot about it yeah and well studied yeah and and you know i've i've read the silmarillion i've read all the other stuff like i i know it but like i can't claim that i'm as good as as a lot of people so you know i'm i'm i was a little worried that people would get upset about it especially when i was just starting out and didn't really have uh maybe as much goodwill as i do now yeah um, and this one's a little special uh for a couple of reasons yeah well this the is first, the second one i was gonna say the first the first reason you probably don't even know about this is mm. that i really got into lord of the rings uh in my youth but uh just because of where my reading level was at i didn't i struggled getting through uh the original trilogy that's one of those books that people hand to like 10 year olds yeah, sometimes it's a little tough which is i think a little ambitious um, but I was just enamored with it anyways, and mm-hmm. uh, I couldn't get through it all. But as much as I did get through, um, I wanted more. And the next one I picked up was the Silmarillion, Oof. which I couldn't I couldn't do. Yeah, that's um, reasonable. It's it's so it's cool to, as an adult. It's yeah. cool to finally get like to know what the hell the Silmarils are. And yeah. What all this nonsense was. Mm hmm. Uh, and then your second reason, which is probably the same as yeah, my second reason, the, the is, big one, uh, like a lot of the, or one of the big reasons that I started doing this show, uh, came from when Phil and I lived together ages ago now, man, I don't want to think about that. It was um, nine years ago. Oh no. Um, you know, hanging out in our kitchen, kicking, cooking dinner or whatever. Yeah. And Phil just <laughs> hey, asking me questions. Hey Adam, you know a lot about Lord of the Rings, don't you? About... <laughs> all of this stuff and me either saying yeah here's how this works or you know what no but let me check on that for you and we'll figure it out and we had a lot of conversations like that and a lot of the tone of that conversation was Mm -hmm. what ends up becoming the hi 101 format um i remember telling a friend about just the 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 evening we spent talking about the creation myth yeah and i was just like man it was like you know how like sometimes I, I I am almost positive I'm not fabricating this memory. <laughs> it's, just, it's just too perfect to to say that without the disclaimer. But I right. pretty much, I'm fairly certain I remember saying, you know, you'll be t- sitting in history class and there's some cool stuff in what you're learning. Yeah. But it's just presented in such an inaccessible way. Right. That's how Lord of the Rings always felt for me. Right. And 
Adam just sat me down and explained Lord of the Rings right in a really accessible way, and it was just a cool story instead of like yeah, I don't I don't essay. think you've told me that before. That's yeah, interesting. It happened. Um, but I'm yeah, fairly I mean, sure. There's <laughs> brains are fallible. Oh boy, are they? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so so between this and then be, uh, between this and and uh, you know conversations I had with with Miller, those are those are kind of the two uh, big things that led me to this, uh, this format and this show. And like the idea of like, you know, the, the idea of sitting down and talking into a microphone on my own about all of this stuff Mm -hmm. is incomprehensibly boring to me and sitting there and talking to you about it was a really fun experience. And we both had a good time. And like, it it was that that kind of made it one of my fondest memories of when we lived together. Oh, thanks man. That's awesome. Like that and getting the cat. Yeah, yeah, good cat. She's so cute. And um, go pet her when we're done. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, if if we can do that for Tolkien, which should work fairly well, then I don't see why we can't do that with history. And that's how this all starts out. So that's why I was really glad to do this episode. That's why I'm really glad to do it with you specifically. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah was I think time. it would have been a little hurt if you'd done Tolkien with someone other I don't, than me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't Just a have, little. <laughs> I wouldn't have blamed you, honestly. I, I would have felt bad doing it with somebody else, too. So, no, Tolkien's perfect for this stuff. I mean, he he spent his entire life... Um, crafting this history. Yeah, and, and the stuff is there, and it's deep. And, like, yeah, it's it's a little bit hokey at times, and it's very, like... It's it's more based on Beowulf than it is yeah. on actual history and, and, you know, things like that. So a lot of it is a little bit too neat. But and like there even, is this aspect of like he's thought of everything. Even doing the episode, like you'll you'll catch us like trying not to say character and trying to say this historical figure. Yeah. And like it's tricky, but it's just also not that hard to lose yourself in the story of it. Mm-hmm. And and uh yeah, I mean I get I get that this isn't everybody's cup of tea, you know. I it's, the Silmarillion is probably my favorite book that I wouldn't recommend to anybody, if that makes sense. <laughs> it, it reads, oh, but at least it reads a lot like history. There's a lot of dense language in there, and there's a lot of all of a sudden they're referring to 45 pages ago, something you barely remember, yeah. and uh, there's there's cultural things wrapped up in it, and it's it's uh, I don't know. There's there's something very unique about it. But every time I talk to somebody about doing these uh, April Fools' episodes they'll pitch me ideas on topic and every time that happens i sit there and i i think about what i know about that topic and maybe not always fairly but almost every single time i think like i don't think there's enough world building there yeah even when there's a lot of world building because i have tolkien to look at and go i have that if i'm trying to do tolkien yeah. um you know even even something like uh um uh, King Arthur was easier because it's based in actual, you know, they've they've just inserted characters into actual real fiction or, uh, you know, Star Wars because they've spent the last 20 years writing novels that, yeah. you know, about whoever was in a frame for half a second has a 45 <laughs> page backstory. And like, yeah. but but Tolkien did it first and uh, in a lot of ways he did it best. Yeah. And so some of those topics, again, unfairly to them, I go like, ah, but it's no Tolkien. So I'm uh, I'm glad we got around to it. So anyways, just wanted to add a couple extra notes at the end. Um, again, Phil, glad you could come on for this one. Yeah, it's, same. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay, so that's your April Fool's episode for this year. 
uh, as with every other year, I won't be posting corrections because this is for fun and corrections are not. I would love to hear what you thought, though. So hit me up on Twitter at HI101podcast and let me know. Don't worry too much about China. I'm still hard at work there and we'll have more ready soon. But this is one deadline I absolutely could not miss. This would have been ridiculous any other day of the year. Thanks for being an amazing audience that gets into stuff like this, or at least puts up with stuff like this. And I'll be back with Real History soon enough. Mm-hmm.